Let me uh, start by just giving you a little window into my life. Uh, Growing up, my mom was Catholic. My dad was Presbyterian. My stepmom was Methodist. And then my stepdad had little, if any, faith background at all. So I was simply confused. (laughs) Confused whether at the end of the prayer I was supposed to say amen or amen. Confused whether during the Lord's Prayer we were going to say forgive us for our debts or forgive us for our trespasses. Was it going to be wine or grape juice? (laughs) So when I first started pursuing a faith kind of on my own accord, um, I didn't really know what it was supposed to look like. How was I supposed to act? What was I supposed to say? But if you know anything about me, you know that I have to perform well. I really believe in success, a.k.a. I have to win at everything. And so um, I looked around at what I knew about Christians, and I decided that I was going to play their game well, even if I had to fake it. And so the night before I kind of went to my first church service on my own accord, I went to the basketball locker room. I got a brand new FCA God's Game Plan Bible, and I began my journey. I did what any good Christian would do. I went to the CVS. I got a four-pack of the most vibrant highlighters, yeah, that they had in stock. And I began highlighting. Now, I didn't know what I was highlighting. It didn't matter what I was highlighting. I just knew that Christians love to highlight their Bible, so I was going to have the most colorful one there. I mean, John 3.16 made the cut because of the infamous wrestler of my middle school years, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, I took some, uh, some random verses in Ezekiel. I mean, the bears came out and mauled the boys. Highlight. <laughs> I, I didn't know what I was highlighting. I didn't just use one highlighter because I might make it look like I did it all in one sitting. <laughs> you got to like bend back the bind a few times, make it look to use. So I would just say for any of you like entrepreneurs out there, there might be a market, a strong market for pre-highlighted Bibles. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying. Now, some of you here this weekend might be in a similar place that I was in. Uh, Maybe you're new to this whole church thing. Maybe you're still skeptical about the truth claims that we find in Scripture. Um, Others of us are in a slightly different place. We've decided to base our lives off of the claims that we find in this book. And we might even have many copies of it kind of floating around our house, but oftentimes they're just lying on a shelf collecting dust, or we have to like scroll to page like five of our reference folder on our iPhone uh, just to find it. And and sometimes the, the book that we claim to base our life on is actually the most neglected book in our life. But regardless of where you are this weekend and and your views of scripture, it's worth considering that that this book is quite remarkable. I mean, it's actually a collection of 66 different books written by over 40 different authors over the course of 1,400 years. It was written by fishermen and tax collectors, kings, shepherds, doctors, political advisors and political prisoners, farmers and poets. And in it, we find history and poetry, teachings, letters, urgent exhortations from prophets, and amazingly, one seamless script emerges from the pages. The story of a passionate God on a relentless pursuit after the people that he loves. We're in a series at NCC right now entitled Script, the idea that over time your favorite scripture will become the script of your life. 
And I'm extremely honored and more than excited to be up here sharing with you this weekend. But I do have to admit that when Pastor Mark first asked me to be a part of this series, I felt a little uncertain. Uncertain because he asked me to preach on a life verse and I don't even have a life verse. And maybe it's because I'm young or maybe it's because I've only legitimately been highlighting in my Bible for several years now. Um, and, and while there's certainly, you know, there have been some different verses, um, even at this point in my faith journey, that have shaped me during different seasons. I think of, um, of Romans 5.3. It says, not only this, but also glory and tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. That verse carried me during a really difficult time early on in my faith. Or I think of Ephesians 2.13. It says, you who were once far off have now been brought near through Christ. I still remember exactly where I was sitting when I read that verse in scripture. And I realized that I didn't have life figured out quite the way that I thought I did. And most times, oftentimes when I read scripture, I'll come across a verse that grabs a hold of me and has the potential to change the trajectory of my life even just a little bit. But I would say that probably 40 years from now when I hope to be half as wise and half as witty as Dick Foth, um, I would preach probably a totally different message out of a totally different verse. And some of you here might be like me, that while you've been challenged and encouraged during this series, you felt maybe a little left out or a little lost because you don't have a life verse. My encouragement to you would be just stay in the script. Because I really believe that if we continue to read and research and rehearse what we find in scripture, we'll find our life verse. Or maybe better yet, our life verse will actually discover us. When I think about the, the script, the verse that's most shaping me and challenging me during this season, um, I, I keep coming back to a verse in a moment in the life of Peter. It's the verse that I find myself thinking about most often, talking about most often, and wrestling through the most often during this season. We find in the story that uh, Peter had been following Jesus for three years. He had seen Jesus work many miracles. He embraced Jesus' teaching. In fact, Peter himself had walked on water. He had claimed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the, the living God, and he even said that he would go to death for Jesus. And then we see that after Jesus washed Peter and the other disciples' feet on the night of the Last Supper, they head to the garden where the disciples fall asleep while Jesus prays. And then a group of men come to Jesus and the other disciples in the garden. We pick up the story in Luke chapter 22, verse 54, and it'll be up on the screen. The verse reads, So they arrested him, Jesus, and led him to the high priest's home. And Peter followed at a distance. So Jesus was arrested. The disciples scatter. The man who had healed the sick and touched the lepers and shown compassion to the children was dragged to the home of the high priest. He was put before an illegal trial in front of the Sanhedrin. He was taken to the egomaniac King Herod, and then he was accused before a butcher of a Roman governor named Pilate. And Peter followed, but at a distance. Now, Peter was definitely a uh, two steps 
forward, one step backward, kind of two steps sideways kind of guy. I mean, just several months earlier, we see in scripture that Jesus was, um, was very impressed with his faith one moment, and then actually rebuking him, even referring to him as a devil the very next. Peter often put his foot in his mouth. He acted impulsively when he should have been patient. He was timid when he should have taken action. But I find it interesting that he was the one that Jesus uses to build his church later on in Acts chapter 2. I think that if we're honest, a lot of us can relate to Peter and his roller coaster faith. We have strong faith one day and then it falters the next. We find ourselves with an unbridled passion one day and firm conviction, and then doubt creeps in the next. And the good news is, there's place for us in the family of God. Because the family of God was not meant for people who had all of their stuff together. It's meant for people who need a big God to handle their stuff. The family of God was not meant for the healthy, but for the sick. Not for the people who have everything under control, but for those who need God to take control. God uses us. Despite our brokenness, despite our uncertainty, despite our timid inaction and our impulsive and reckless action. So this weekend, you might be following Jesus closely. So closely that you can't help but start to look a little bit more like him. You're starting to pick up on his speech patterns. You're starting to pick up on his habits. And then others might find themselves following Jesus like Peter did at a distance. Maybe you're newer to faith and still kind of checking things out. Maybe you've been burned by the church or someone in the church and you've pushed Jesus away because of that. Maybe you're on uh, such a mountaintop during this season that you don't recognize your need for Jesus. Or maybe you find yourself in the depths of a valley and you wonder how Jesus could possibly reach you. Maybe you're just distracted by other things. But the danger in following Jesus at a distance is that we'll be close enough to see Jesus, but far enough away that our lives aren't changed by him. We'll be close enough to see Jesus, but not close enough that we're affected by him. We settle for just seeing Jesus when the life that he offers is in being with Jesus. We think seeing him is enough when it's being with him that changes everything. So many times we settle for Sunday morning presence or when we have a problem faith, when we need something, prayer. We give only when we have abundance and we live only according to scripture when it's convenient. We keep Jesus like kind of on our radar in case we need him, but at an arm's length so he doesn't inconvenience our life. It's like we're willing to do what he says as long as it doesn't interrupt our own agenda. And so I wanna challenge all of us across all of our locations this weekend, regardless of where you are. Don't settle for following at a distance, but push yourself a little bit closer to Jesus, 
today. Take one step in. And I know that can be a little vague. Like, what does it look like to follow Jesus closely? How do we act? What do we do? What are the markers or the evidence of following Jesus closely? I would start by saying that we have the opportunity to enjoy his presence. We get him. I think oftentimes we, we are in search of his will or his plans or his blessings and we miss out on the fact that the best opportunity that we get is him. I think we fall into this trap of, of searching out his will and we miss him. I would say that we can't make following a plan a higher priority than following a person. The Westminster Catechism states that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy him. Our created goal is to enjoy him. We've reduced following Jesus to a list of do's and don'ts and compulsory attendance at church services. When it's supposed to be a relationship, following Jesus was never meant to be about spiritual chores. It's a relationship. And while relationships certainly, some more than others, take intentionality, focus, and even work, it's, it's never meant to be drudgery. So how do you enjoy Jesus best? Where do you enjoy Jesus most? What do you love most about Jesus? It's supposed to be life-giving and fun. We were created to enjoy his presence. And so do you enjoy him best alone or with others? Do you enjoy him most in your room or in an art gallery or near a lake or at the altar or in a cathedral? Do you enjoy him most early in the morning or late at night? Do you enjoy him most when you're at rest or when you've expended every ounce of energy that you have serving someone else? As Pastor Mark says, no one can worship God like you or for you. There never has been and never will be anyone like you. And that's not a testament to you. That's a testament to the God who created you. No one can enjoy God like you or for you. In fact, I believe that when we enjoy God the way that he created us to, we're actually celebrating his creativity. And the opposite is true. When we follow some prescription on how to best enjoy God or just copy someone else, we're robbing him of his creativity. I mean, when we look to scripture, we see such a vast spectrum of the ways that people engaged God. For instance, Abraham, he had a religious bent. He was like just building altars wherever he went. <laughs> Moses and Elijah, they were activists. They confronted and challenged the spiritual status quo of their culture. David was celebrating with enthusiasm and physical worship. Ezekiel and John encountered God through wonder and brilliant. Solomon searched out God through wisdom and understanding. Mordecai demonstrated his love for God by the way that he cared for others. And then Mary of Bethany just kind of sat. She would have had the quiet time thing like down. <laughs> she was like the classic contemplative. She was just soaking up everything that Jesus had to say. 
God's presence can be enjoyed anytime, any place, anywhere. Our relationship with him is without boundary of time, place, or circumstance. He is present. The only thing missing is us. Enjoying him begins with noticing him so we can acknowledge him and be with him. It's about seeking his face, not just his hand. It's about discovering him and not just his will. It's about enjoying his presence. And we, when we are in close proximity to Jesus, we will enjoy his presence. And then next, we will find ourselves reflecting his personality. Now, Jesus was a man of bold action. And when we read the Bible, I think a lot of times we tend to focus on those actions. But behind every action, behind every conversation, behind every healing, behind every argument, behind every flipped table, there's, a, there's an attribute of Jesus' personality and character. And so when we're in close proximity to Jesus, we're able to discover and uncover those attributes of his character. We look to his actions and we find his personality. Like when he turned water into wine, he showed that he was a good friend. Like he cared about the reputation of those around him. When he wrote in the sand while others threatened to stone the woman caught, caught in adultery, he revealed his extravagant and unexpected forgiveness. When he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, which basically means you look good on the outside, but inside you smell like death. Like Jesus was showing that he's funny. He's got a sense of humor. And then we see that his personality was revealed not only in what he did and how he acted, but also what he taught. Like when he said, turn the other cheek, his shocking humility was on display. When he said, love your enemy, he challenged us to extend his fierce compassion. And when he said, go the extra mile, he revealed that he was a tenacious servant. His character is behind every command, which means that his commands aren't just like rules to live by. They're actually revelations of his personality to the world. What does your life reveal about who Jesus is? And then we can also see his personality in the way that he related to others. What was it like to be on the other side of Jesus? Well, women felt honored. The unseen felt noticed. The foreigners felt welcomed and the religious felt challenged. A question that I often ask myself is, what do people think about Jesus because of me? What do people think about Jesus because of you? What's it like to be on the other side of you? Are we hurried or present? Are we compassionate or judgmental? Are we forgiving or resenting? Are we fun or boring? See, I'm afraid that we've given the world the impression that, that Jesus is inaccessible, that he's unforgiving, that he's judgmental, that he's boring. People form their opinions about Jesus based on their opinion of you. 
I find it really fascinating that in scripture, people who looked nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. Can the same be said of us? Because if people who look nothing like you don't like you, you might not be acting like Jesus. Or flip it the other way, if the only people who like you look exactly like you, you might not look like Jesus. See, when we're in close proximity to Jesus, we will enjoy his presence, we'll reflect his personality. And then lastly, we will live in sync with his mission. In 1946, our nation was recovering from what we know today as the deadliest war in human history. And although allied forces were victorious, the morale was low after the devastation of Pearl Harbor and Hiroshima and the slow realization of the horrors of the concentration camps that were found across Europe. On April 24th of that year, Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Chester Nimitz issued a directive ordering the formation of a flight exhibition team. Their purpose would be to boost Navy morale, demonstrate naval air power, and maintain public interest in naval aviation. Captain Butch Voris formed a team that spent countless hours developing the show. They actually perfected their initial maneuvers in secret over the Florida Everglades, as he said, so that anything, if anything went wrong, only the alligators would know. On July 21st of 1946, the world was introduced to the United States Navy Blue Angels. From the mid-40s to present day, the Blue Angels have performed death-defying stunts to display our military power and precision and to entertain people of all ages. Made up of 16 of the most elite pilots in the world, with their super Hornet fighter jets, they execute skilled and intricate maneuvers at close to mock speed. Now, the most well-known formation is the Blue Diamond. Described as terrifyingly tight, the blue diamond is when the jets come within 18 inches of each other and form a diamond shape and perform a flyover above the onlooking crowd. Now, if you're unaware of how dangerously close that is, 18 inches is like the length from your fingertips to your elbow. 18 inches. When you're operating this closely, you have to be in sync. The Blue Angels have to be coordinated and harmonized and synchronized. One wrong move would have a devastating impact on the pilot next to them. Their mission requires close proximity, but the close proximity requires that they be on that mission together, that they be in sync. When we find ourselves in close proximity to Jesus, we will be forced to live in sync with his mission. So are you following him at a distance or are you a mere 18 inches away? See, Jesus so deeply identified with the hungry, the thirsty, the prisoner, the naked, the stranger, the sick. He said, when you consider them and their plight, Consider that it's actually me that you're serving. 
We have to see Jesus' face in the complicated, in the needy, in the hurting. That's what it's like to live in sync with his mission. When we see a homeless friend, we can't see a project. We have to see Jesus. When we see an orphan, we can't see someone who's unwanted. We have to see Jesus. And when we see a refugee, we can't see a foreigner. We have to see Jesus. Jesus says that our love for him is tied to the way that we love others. Pastor Dave said at our Lincoln campus last weekend, I thought it was so good. He said, what matters most is how we care for the least. Jesus came not only to like, identify with people, he came to change their stories, right? He came to set the prisoner free. He came to bring sight to the blind, to bring hope to the oppressed. Following Jesus requires that we put the needs of others before our own, that we suspend our doubts and grab on to faith, that we trade our fear of the unknown for a trust in the unseen. And I love that our church is living in sync with the mission of Jesus, that we're creating a culture of being on mission every day because that means we're living in close proximity to Jesus. I mean, we're mobilizing mission teams around the world to see God at work. We're partnering with organizations that are making a difference in our city and in the area. We're praying over our schools. We're providing safe haven for children who are at risk. We're staying committed to racial reconciliation. And while I certainly like celebrate the work and the dedication of our church, I have to admit that I have a tendency to fall into a trap of believing that I'm on mission because I'm a part of a community that is. That I talk about what we're doing even though I didn't participate or contribute. There's a danger in believing that we are personally on mission because we're hearing the stories of other NCCers who are. It's like we try to live vicariously through the mission of others. But we find ourselves on mission, not through our proximity to others, not through our, our proximity, no, let me start over. We find, uh, we find ourselves on mission through our proximity to Jesus, not our proxy to others, through our proximity to Jesus, not our proxy to others. So are we personally living in sync with his mission? Are you close enough to Jesus that you're loving the people that he loved, the way that he loved them, that you're serving the people that he would have served the way he served them? Are you able to see Jesus's face even in the least of these? Enjoy his presence, reflect his personality, and live in sync with his mission. Peter followed at a distance. If we keep reading, we find that moments later, Peter denies even knowing Jesus. Peter, who had spent three years with him, failed to be with him in the time of his greatest need. He claimed to not even know the person whose personality he had committed to reflect. And he missed out on the greatest mission ever in that moment. 
I do want to be a little careful not to knock Peter too hard because like I said earlier, I think we can all, I know I can relate to him so much. I mean, there's so much humanity in this moment for him. He had to have been scared, confused, just trying to survive. But the danger in following Jesus at a distance is that we'll be close enough to see Jesus, but far enough away that our lives aren't affected by him. We'll be close enough to see Jesus, but far enough away that it doesn't affect the way that we respond to criticism. Close enough to see Jesus, but far enough away that it doesn't affect the way that we treat our spouses. Close enough to see Jesus, but far enough away that he doesn't affect our integrity in the workplace. Far enough away that he doesn't affect our attitudes, our worldviews, our reactions, our dreams, our fears. Wherever you are this weekend, what would it look like to take one step closer to Jesus today? To get in close proximity of him. And for those of you who feel like you're just too far away, there's too big of a gap. I want to encourage you with a verse out of James chapter 4, verse 8. It says, draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Jesus closes the gap. And that's true for all of us. Let's pray. Jesus, we draw near to you. Would you show us the areas of our life where we're following you at a distance, where we've pushed you away, where we're keeping you at an arm's length. Bring us into your presence and help us to enjoy who you are. May we be right and good reflections of your personality to the world around us. Jesus, it's our desire to be living in perfect sync with your mission every day. We want to be closer. We want you to be our priority. We want you to be the center of our life. So we draw near to you today, Lord. Would you draw near to us? As we respond to this message, Lord, would you just pierce our hearts with who you are so that we can look a little bit more like you today? In Jesus' name we pray.